0: An investor's investor.
1: Weird.
0: Always thinking.
1: Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukomnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. A quick programming message before an outstanding conversation with behind the scenes media superstar, Joe Ferullo. This will be the last session of outside in for a while we're going on hiatus we may be back but we may not be spark network which has been kind enough to sponsor outside in for 87 episodes over four seasons is rethinking its media programming including all of its podcasts i want to thank the entire spark team including sparkhead jim wyant artist par excellence alicia tiber legendary dj nick harcourt and my former engineer, producer, Elizabeth Thompson, and a very special thank you to my friend, engineer, producer, and keeper of Contagious Passion, Conor Ohingasa, for making Outside In sound great, be informative, and grab hold of so many people's stories and interests all at the same time. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have superstar media executive Joe Furulo as our special guest. Joe has incredible insight into what makes America tick, from many angles. He's covered The Powerful. He was a columnist for The Ill, Washington's unofficial newspaper of record. He's covered The Important. He won an Emmy as a producer of Dateline NBC, for that show's coverage of 9-11. He's produced really tough stories, from Vietnamese war orphans to initially schools. He's produced humor, including the special that celebrated the end of the mega-hit Friends. Moving to CBS as Executive Vice President for Programming, he focused more on the daily life of America, overseeing a number of long-running hits, including Judge Judy, Entertainment Tonight, and Dr. Phil. Let's add religion to that list of expertise. Today, Joe is CEO and publisher of The National Catholic Reporter. NCR's beat is Catholicism itself, one of the world's most influential institutions, and its impact on U.S. laws, society, and culture. Politics, sociology, religion, drama, humor, pathos. Joe has seen, understood, and analyzed them all as they interact with American society. I've been anticipating this conversation for months, and I'm very glad that it's here. Welcome,
0: Joe. Thank you, John, for that embarrassingly long introduction. Uh, I really appreciate it, though. Very good to be here with you.
1: Yes, that is the advantage of a podcast. If it were a television show, you would have turned it off already. Exactly. So what's your origin story? Where and how did you grow up? Are there two or three experiences that stand out in your memory to help you become the person you are today? I grew up in the Bronx,
0: a working class Irish-Italian neighborhood near a a large Catholic church called the Macchina Conception. My father owned a small Italian bread bakery where from the time I was seven or eight, uh, I, I worked there with them on the weekends, packaging bread that my uncle would bake and then delivering it to various stores and homes in our area of the Bronx. So that formed me a lot, you know, having a dad who was both a small business owner, but also a blue collar, uh, and growing up in that kind of neighborhood where people worked hard, really formed who I was and really set me on a certain path. Uh, it was, it, it, looking back on it, it was very colorful and nostalgic. I'd walked into the bakery at four in the morning as a little kid on a Saturday. And there were some small time mafia guys hanging out, having coffee. Cause the door was the only place open after the bars closed. So I got a very colorful upbringing from that. And it meant a lot to me. I think the other impacts I've had, and this is going to be cliche. So I, I apologize in advance, came from teachers. I had a, I had a math teacher in grammar school. Uh, who didn't teach us math, but instead uh, taught us Simon and Garfunkel songs. So to this day, I'm no good at long division because we'd walk in and instead of there being a board full of math problems, there would be the lyrics to Sounds of Silence or some Judy Collins song. And she would take out her guitar and that would be a a lot of our math class. And up until that point, I wasn't a great student. School didn't interest me. But she was engaging in ways that, you know, you wouldn't expect from a math teacher and made school a little bit more interesting to me and made it a more fun and I became a better student after it. And the other one was high school English teacher, who was the first person to tell me, uh, I was a good writer in specifically and said, you have this interesting way with words. You have an interesting cadence to your writing, uh, in a very sophisticated way. He He made a, a critique of my writing. And was the first one to say that and sort of take me seriously as someone who might have a, 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 future in writing.
1: So we actually met in college for our listeners. We both worked on the Columbia's Daily Newspaper. Now I have found out we also both grew up in the Bronx and growing up in the Bronx is uh, my kids sometimes say the Bronx in me is coming out. Right. Same, same beer. But we will we will move on to, to some of your adult endeavors. But we will do
0: a Bronx podcast at one point in our lives, okay? Yeah, well, we'll have to come back and just talk Bronx for a while.
1: I love it. I love it. It, it was definitely formative. We'll leave it at that. Right. But it, it is a, a podcast where I interview you. It's not, we don't get to go both ways here. Okay. 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 So you won an Emmy for your coverage of 9-11 dateline well i assume that that coverage occupies a special place of honor in your career sometimes however what's valued most by the people outside isn't what you might value the most sometimes there's something that you did that you just think got overlooked or wasn't it was a trivial thing but you did it really well perhaps it's something different what television experience has meant the most to you and why
0: oh wow that's very very interesting, interesting.
1: You know, um,
0: a couple of, one was a story that you mentioned, you referred to that I did about Amerasian orphans in Vietnam, uh, which was an incredible story. These two brothers, same Vietnamese mom, different American soldier dads. Um, and the boys were put up by their mom out on the last plane out of Saigon before it fell and, and she gave them these three books, children's books in Vietnamese. And sent them with, they were adopted by a family in Baltimore, very strict military family and did not have a great growing up. They said both decided to move out to California where, where one of our staff members met them and heard their story. And so we followed them as they went back to Vietnam to find their mother. And it was, it was incredibly emotional and a great story. And it was a great way to get into the larger story of what America left behind when they left Vietnam. Uh, so th- that, that was a very special story for me, for a lot of different reasons. And I remember looking out, uh, I was at a hotel that was the old Caravelle, where all media people stayed during the war in Saigon, looking out. So this was 1999, 2000, and there was a, a Bank of America across the street. There was a big Pepsi Cola sign and a Bastion Robbins. And I thought, okay, that's the way America wins wars, not the way they tried here. That's the way they went. If it only they had tried that, but a different outcome it would have been for so many people in Vietnam. It was, it was pretty incredible. Uh, and the other one was just a bit more fun in a lot of ways. I spent a month in the North Atlantic at the uh, Titanic site, crash site. And it was this incredible television operation, you know, shooting from, from the middle of nowhere, where we, we had three different boats with, with camera crews on it, and it, we had our own cell phone tower it was an amazing operation and it was just a fun story in that way we were exploring the titanic wreck but it was sort of the power of television kind of moment for me being part of a huge network operation and all the resources it could bring to bear to cover anything it wanted for me those those things stand out for very different reasons but, but but really stand out in my mind
1: in your last television gig you were intimately involved in the success of such mainstream programming as Judge Judy and Dr. Phil. Now, to be honest, those programs aren't on my must-watch list. And I know that sounds like I'm putting myself above the viewers of those programs, but I'm not. In fact, I often think my inability to relate to parts of pop culture is a personal failing. Because the truth is, Judge Judy Shindlin is in fact a mainstream American cultural icon. So help me to understand the phenomenon. You had a close-up view of that for years. What makes those types of shows so popular and turns the stars into lionized public figures? John, I'm, I'm right there with you. I
0: mean, uh, I will confess that before I took that job, I didn't watch any of those shows. I knew of them, of course, the way you did. Everyone knows those shows. They're iconic. And they even were back when I started 13 years ago, 14 years ago there, but I was not New viewer. I had a, I had a job during the day. I didn't see the shows, but the shows gave me an appreciation. And this is going back to our Bronx roots, you and I, it gave me an appreciation for working Americans, once again, that I didn't really have. It makes you understand what those shows mean to people who are working all day long, and maybe they've got a carpet bread, right? Maybe they're home between their first and second job or their first and second shift, And they have a half hour, they have an hour just to, to do something else with their brains, and they turn to one of these shows. And you have to honor them to that. And to your point, you got to figure out what is it that means that much to them. And usually each, each of these shows, to some extent, becomes, a, becomes a, a learning experience for them. The Judge Judy show was conducted like a real court show. She was a judge in, in New York City, appointed by Iv Koch, worked in family court before she was discovered by a TV producer and became famous in her fifties. So she, she conducted that show like a real court. And you learned a little something about the law. Beyond that, she spoke to people who felt, and Dr. Phil was the same way, who felt somehow like the system was against them. Something we hear a lot more these days than we used to, but people who felt like they didn't get a fair shake. And there are a lot of people out there who feel the legal system, if you're a working class American, if you're a diverse American, doesn't give you a fair shake and she did. And she was very, very clear about why she was ruling the way she rolled and the way Moral upstanding citizens should behave and not. behave. And I think people were hungry for that. People whose everyday lives were, were not glamorous, were not filled with, uh, with a lot of ups, uh, like someone who was very, very clear on what right and wrong was. And Phil was the same way.
1: Something you just said that people whose lives were not glamorous. Um, in some ways, I think that shows like that are the bridge from the aesthetic of a more private and internally motivated America to today's influencer culture. and culture. And I want to give you credit because you understood that a decade ago. You probably don't remember writing this, but okay. you wrote this in 2013, and I'm going to quote you. Quote, it's something I've seen with my career in television, from news to talk shows, and it long confounded me. Why would perfectly normal people rush to go on a national broadcast to bear their souls about personal tragedy? then i realized that the act of being on television was a catharsis a validation whatever i've gone through losing my home in a fire losing a loved one to a crime must have greater meaning if cameras want to record it and transmit it across the continent end quote to me that explains so much and in some ways fame however achieved is now a commodity if you're on television if you get millions of hits on social media you're now part of the leadership of America. If you're Kim Kardashian, <laughs> entrepreneurial opportunities, are there. So if you're Donald Trump, you can get elected because fame trumps, no pun intended, an old-fashioned sense of what the qualifications were to get elected. Now, I don't think I'm 100% correct on this, but what are your thoughts about it?
0: No, it's a, it is a fascinating thing that I was confronted with a lot, especially in my work at Dateline. Among these stories I would do uh, were sort of stories about murder, which Dateline does exclusively. Now we were not that kind of news magazine when I was there, but it astounded me that people said, oh yeah, sure. But my loved one just died. Please come to my home with you, a correspondent, two camera clues, a lighting guy, and a sound man, please. It's so counterintuitive, John. And yet I, the feeling I came away with as you quoted was for those people, it meant that my tragedy is important. It means more to me because it means more to other people, right? It validates what I'm going through by being asked by a major national network to tell my story. No one listens to my story. My whole life long, no one has listened to my story. And now everyone's interested. I remember one of the very first stories I was asked to produce for Dateline um, was based in Orange County here in in Los Angeles. Another story based on the Vietnam War. Down in Orange County, uh, for your listeners who don't know, there's an area called Little Saigon, huge population of Vietnamese who came here after the fall of South Vietnam. A guy living there was a former GI really down on his luck, living up, living by himself. He had found his, his Vietnamese wife. They were married very quickly during the war and then divorced and their kid were also living nearby in the same town in Orange County. And of course, they thought, oh, what a great story. What a great story. It was not that great in reality. The, the Vietnamese mom didn't want anything to do with the former Shiite dad. And when I called her, she could not understand why television would have any interest in her private life. Because she was Vietnamese. She wasn't married. You know, she was Asian. And she was like, no, that's what I, and she kept saying, Joe, I don't understand why you're calling. I don't Why would anyone care? Why? This is my private life. Why would I tell you? all about this man and what he did to me and how he let us down. And so I, and I had a very tough time convincing my bosses in New York that she was genuine about this. She really meant it. She didn't get it. She had no desire to make her public, make her private life public. It took a lot of doing. Um, And they finally went, okay, okay. But again, even then, and worse today, as you said, it was rare to have someone say, no, 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 I don't really need national television. Thank you very much.
1: Um, Let me read something else she wrote, pointing out that many people living in an acquisitive society or a consumer society, such as the U.S., exhibit, um, your word, narcissistic traits and an unjustified sense of entitlement. For them, you said, quote, economic hard times feel like unjust punishment from an uncaring parent, end quote. Expand on that a little. Why do you think people feel entitled why do you think we are in a consumer society and 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 you know how does this play out in the current milieu
0: well that's that's interesting john
1: Uh, there's a little
0: bit of a shift i think in my in my thinking on that but Mm -hmm. but let me let me say this i i think as americans we're used to having things a certain way and we think that that's the way life should be period Paragraph. um i think today we think there's a large part of the country who thinks Life should be like it was in the 1950s when America ruled everything because the rest of the world was in disarray and destroyed. Um, and they have no appreciation for what they have. Today, you have people understandably complaining about inflation, which is much higher in all the rest of the world. Understandably complaining about the, uh, the equality gap in pay, but which is much higher in many other parts. You know, In Argentina, they have an inflation rate of well over 100%. But for Americans, even a little discomfort is very uncomfortable because we're just not used to it. And I think America looks at it as a failing. I think as a society, I think because of our role in the world, we're we we hypersensitive to when are we gonna lose that role? We're hypersensitive to when will it be, be in decline? You know, this whole industry and it's been going on for decades in declinism. We are waiting that just around the corner. If we don't spend enough, if we don't tax enough or tax too little, if we don't pray enough, you know, it's all, it's all over for America. And that's part of what goes into it. Where my, where my thoughts have changed a little bit is um, the way some working class people feel overlooked in this society. And I don't think that's just whining. And that's just a, 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 the grievance for the sake of grievance. And I know a lot of people who are anti-Trump feel that way. And I don't, and I understand that too. But most of my expanded family, my extended family, uh, voted for drugs. And I'm thinking of certain relatives who live in upstate New York, which, as you know, has had a bad economy for decades and decades. And they were those people who, you know, the factory left town, they got retrained and reemployed. Then that's that and they had to go through it all over again. And they want to send their kids to the local state university, but that's gotten much more expensive. And that's a bit of a challenge for them. And I get how they feel like no one's really thinking about them and no one really cares. In fact, messages they get are just the opposite. You know, you are not high on the list of priorities here. So to that extent, uh, I understand a little bit about what's happening among some people in this country when it comes to feeling unappreciated and feeling like the country's going in the wrong direction. Uh, I think we ask a lot of people these days in terms of what they need to go along with. And income inequality is part of it, and even though people are not putting in those terms. So so I think he switched a little bit on that. I think people are a little more justified maybe after, you know, 40 years of certain policies than they had been in terms of thinking that the the cards were, were dealt against.
1: Let's move on to your current job. Um, yeah. CEO and publisher of National Catholic Review.
0: National Catholic Reporter.
1: National Catholic Report. Let, let me sit corrected. Let me give you... Two softballs for context. Thank you so much. <laughs> what do you see as the state of organized religion in the U.S. today? And within that, what's the state of Catholicism?
0: Look, both are clearly in decline. Um, and even among evangelicalism, they're, they're in decline now. That was, the, that was sort of the last holdout in this country. And even that's gone down. People are walking away from organized religion. I don't think that means they're walking away from faith. Or spirituality, but certainly they want the way way of organized religion. What does that say about us? You know, it's a, a few things. And yeah, people have talked about you know where we seem like we're becoming more inward as a people. That we're less involved in things that involve community, and certainly belonging to part to congregation is part of community and provide a lot of support. I, we have changed that way. I think we are much more isolated as individuals. COVID helped that along, but. Look, I lived, I moved to a new house in a new part of LA. And it's like a little snapshot of how this country used to be. You walk about a mile down the main street here and there's a nice at Columbus hall, a woman's, a woman's club and an Elks Lodge. And across the street, a Mason's Lodge, all within a a few feet of each other. And that's the world of the fifties and '60s When people wanted to be together, they joined clubs, they joined groups. And they had, they shared some kind of common bond, you know, as well as going to churches. And we've moved away from that. I think institutional religion, and this applies especially to the Catholic church, has accelerated that process by getting involved in politics. Uh, I I don't know how many people have said to, to, um, to pollsters, please stop with the politics. I don't go to church. I don't go to temple to hear about politics. I come to get away from it. I come to be around other people and, and find a moment to communicate with God. And I don't need to hear about Obamacare. So I think they're doing a little damage by getting involved in politics. Again, I get it to an extent. There's a lot of cultural war stuff that touches on sincere beliefs of a lot of faiths, including Catholicism, but by, but by making it so nakedly political, um, they've done themselves a lot. More. They've, they basically asked, you know, half of their customers to walk away.
1: Yeah, there's a difference between getting involved in issues and getting involved in politics. Exactly right. Exactly um, right. But even there, I think the Catholic Church in particular seems to have evolved. When I was growing up, Catholicism was seen by many, if, if not extreme, then at least doctrinaire. Mm-hmm. Pro-life, anti-gay rights, pro-Vietnam War, et cetera. And that wasn't universal even then. I mean, you had Catholic priests like the Berrigan brothers that took many non-doctrinaire positions. Did it? But the church was sort of viewed as conservative, and today it seems the reverse mm-hmm. with Pope Francis focusing on social justice issues, softening the church's position on gay rights, yeah. criticizing the excesses of extreme capitalism and talking about the danger of climate change, opposing death penalty, et cetera. What happened to enable that evolution, and do you think it will persist after Francis? It's
0: a great question, and it, it is an evolution, and I don't know where it's going to go answer so your last know, question first, but to just go back a little bit in time, what happened in the early sixties was a, a, a meeting of bishops called Vatican II. That was called by Pope John the 23rd of the time that really rethought the church and tried to make it more collegial, more welcoming, more open. And it sparked a bit of a revolution. You know, the Berican brothers came out of that spirit of Vatican II. Um, my teacher in math, who played guitar, who was a nun, Sister Marianne, she came out of the Vatican too. Uh, ethos and feeling. A lot of those opening up to the, the Catholic priests and nuns who went down to the south to march for civil rights and to register voters came out of that feeling. That the Catholic church was there to do civil good. It then, things then changed as they often do, right? You then you had a bit of a backlash where you had with uh, Pope John Paul II, who was Pope for 25 plus years, was more conservative and got more conservative as he went along. He was followed by yet another, even more conservative Pope. So for a good long period of time, call it 30, 35 years, you had that church that you're talking about, very, very conservative, very anti-communist, even though the communists were all gone by that point, uh, very suspicion in a way of democracy. Francis comes from Argentina, comes from the South. And so has a very different take on a lot of those issues. Much more Latin take, a much more tolerant take, and has tried to bring the church back a little bit more to that Vatican II ethos of being welcoming and less judgmental. Much more of hey, read the gospel. A lot of these things we keep talking about in the cultural wars have are not even mentioned in the gospel. Can we just go back to that? Um uh, he has to be very careful. It's a it's a a universal church and not all country. America doesn't run the church. Europe doesn't run the church. It's it's worldwide. So he has to go incrementally as he's doing on gay rights, but he's trying. Now I'll tell you this, John, unique among nations, Catholic leaders here in the U S have popped in there's a very strong group of, of bishops and archbishops and cardinals here. Most of them appointed by this previous, more conservative popes, who have been very, very vocal. Uh, in their opposition to him and to his more, to uh, his liberalization. This is unique in the past crit a pope didn't welcome criticism. This one does. He said, you know, tell me what you think. Although he's beginning to get a little tired of it. Um, but any criticism of the Pope was always put in the most positive terms. Like we agree with this, but it was always said with the incredible respect this this group of UX bishops come at him again as if it's a political campaign. And I need to best this guy on debate points. I need to best him in the media. I need to get the bigger headlines. I need to get the funding from rich, conservative Catholic donors to make sure my point of view gets out there. Very different way that the church, than the church has ever really seen in terms of voicing your opposition.
1: They see that, and let's talk about the U.S. and religion for a second, and, yep. and it is broader than the Catholic Church. I mean, I happen to be Jewish, you see it in, in various Jewish denominations as well. To me, and I will admit my prejudice here, Francis's concern for the poor and disempowered is sort of the embodiments of the best of religion, the idea that there's divinely humanity and it's up to us to raise it up. I'm not sure that's the view of the majority in the United States today. Um, many people is an us versus them. It's macho. It's eye for an eye. Russell Moore, the former head of the Southern Baptist convention recently when he said that pastors preach the sermon on the Mount and get to the part about turning to the cheap and parishioners object with political statements. Those are liberal talking points. Right. When the pastors say they're literally quoting Jesus Christ, they're told, and I quote, Mr. Moore quote, yeah but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. End quote. Now, to be honest, I don't know if more stories apocryphal or not, but it does illustrate sort of not just a divide now, but throughout history, religions had this tension between being able to both unite and divide. I doubt we are going to come to a resolution one way or the other, but how do you see it playing out over the next decade or so? Which aspect of religion is ascendant in the United States for the next 10 years?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Let me just go back to your, your, your quotation for more. I, it's very emblematic because look, I remember being, being mm-hmm. in mass and, and the sermon and out would come along and, and we'd hear about turning the other cheek in. Look, a lot of the dads, the Italian working class dads would roll their eyes and go, okay, that, that doesn't really work. But that's different than saying that's a liberal talking point. You know, it's like, yes, I get it. That would be wonderful. If we could change human nature, that would be the best thing. But gosh, you know, the real world that I deal with isn't quite that way, as opposed to saying that's a liberal, uh, dismissing it entirely as some sort of political point. And that's that's very emblematic of the change religion has has made in this country. Uh, where it goes, I don't know, John, look, we've been on this road for a long time. I mean, the moral majority Jerry Falwell was back in, what, 1979, mm-hmm. 1978, when that started. It's, so we've been, since then, at least, we've been on this sort of this path of turning, uh, religion into this politically, this politically issue oriented organization. Can we break from it? I don't know. Um, again, Francis is really trying for the Catholic church and is making headway in places except America. Now my newspaper, um, has a Vatican II perspective on Catholicism. We report a lot on social justice issues and where the church is going on that. We report uh, a lot on LGBTQ Catholics and on the role of women in the church. So we are generally supportive of the way Francis wants to go. But there is a large Catholic media outfit that again, kind of reflects the, the mainstream media world that's being funded by wealthy conservative Catholics who want to get their message out. And so, and that's sort of religious traditionalists throughout the country. Usually the more conservative religious people are the richest religious people and give a lot and make sure their message gets out. So how that will change, I don't know. Um, look, what you keep hoping is that enough people vote with their feet, that somebody gets the message, that you, you, you get tired of walking into a church that's a little emptier every single Sunday. And you understand you have to shift in order to survive. But there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of people, at least in the Catholic world and other Christian denominations who feel like, look, you know what, that's a good thing. You know, we're smaller, but we're pure. We have the real, true believers coming to see us rather than the folks who, who believe things we don't or, or view the church in a way we don't. And who eventually wins? I don't know. I don't know. I do think for a lot of people, it will get to that point where, do you want to, do you want to ruin this thing or do you want to save it? Uh, what, that's what Francis is trying to do. You want to open the doors wider and maybe get more people in and have them listen to the message, or do you really want to keep the doors shut tight the way you have it now? And that's the choice they face.
1: Hey, we've spent all this time on your observations and analogies, television, America, society, religion, and, and I think for good reason, your perspective is experienced and insightful. But let me turn it inward for a second. What makes Joe Farrell tick? What gets you out of bed in the morning?
0: Gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, You know, I I like journalism and I like the news business and I believe in it. And it's certainly the job that I'm having now. It is a small-ish publication slash website, but influential in our world. And that means a lot to me. It means a lot to be part of something that, leaves a mark and I think that's what always sort of drew me to media and to the news world and even to some of the other shows we were talking about like the judge duties of the world they leave a mark and so to be able to be part of something that makes a difference however large or small um is um is a real privilege especially given up given where I grew up and the the chances I had to be in those kinds of positions it's yeah I think it is what keeps me going
1: Let's finish with some short Q&A. Okay. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about?
0: Well, the Kansas City Chiefs, because uh, my newspaper is based in Kansas City, so I've become a Chiefs fan. So I'm, I've gotten a little passionate about them.
1: Now, does that uh, mean you're a Taylor Swift fan as well?
0: I, I just, no, I haven't. done. I've got, I used I used to say to people, I don't like football. I'm a Jets fan. Uh, but kidding. now I've, I've, become a, I've become a bit of a Chiefs fan. So we'll see. Uh, but I'm <laughs> passionate about Uh, and look, I don't mean to sound like a a one-track guy. I'm very passionate about the chance for some things to change in religion, you know, for, for the more liberal part of religion, the more progressive part, not to put it in political terms, there's a moment here. There's a chance where people are being presented with a choice for the first time in a while of what you and I were just talking about, which way do you want to go, which way do you want to go with this? And I'm very passionate about that and happy to be part of something that at least has a voice in that conversation. But that means a lot to me, at least these days.
1: What music do you listen to?
0: Not Taylor Swift, although actually I don't, I don't mind her at all. Um, you know, I always, I've always been, one of my first jobs was uh, working for Rolling Stone magazine. So I've always been sort of proud of staying on a, a certain cutting edge of listening to what music has gone, uh, is going and doing. At my age, I've kind of begun to drift away from worrying about what the latest thing is. I, I do find myself, like a lot of the country, turning back to the 1990s and listening to a lot of music from the 90s. Counting froze, and they did an album 30 years ago called August and Everything After, and I've been listening to that a lot. Um, I've been listening even to one of my wife's favorites, Cootie and the Blowfish, you may remember them from the 90s. So I've been involved, I've been listening to a lot of 90s, uh, a lot of 90s rock music. But this whole thing going on in the country right now, John, where, you know, nostalgia runs in cycles. So the cycle now is the nineties, which, which everyone thinks were much better times. They seem to forget the Clinton impeachment and all that was going on with that. But, and Newt Gingrich. but like, I guess compared to now those, those were better times. So like a lot of people I've sort of gotten in this nineties loop.
1: What are you reading right now?
0: I'm reading a, bo- a book, and again, it's sort of religiously involved, called Our Lady of the Forest by David Gerson, who wrote uh, Still Falling on Cedars several years ago. Uh, a friend of mine gave me this book, and it's, uh, it's really great. It's about a young, a young girl, uh, an orphan runaway in uh, the woods in the Northwest, who, who thinks she starts having visions of the Virgin Mary in the middle of, a, of this um, down on this luck logging town. And it's the story of all these people around there, some of whom believe her and some of whom don't, but who want something to believe in and something to take their lives out of the ordinary and the downbeat. So he's a beautiful writer. There's some things about it that drive me a little crazy, but it's, it's a, it's a good book.
1: Is there an emotion you'd like to feel more often? Oh gosh,
0: John. Wow. Um, probably, probably relief and relaxation. I think we live in tense times and I don't remember the last time that I could honestly say to you, oh, I feel so relaxed right now. Um, whenever I'm done with one thing, you know, either my work day is done or whatever, I, I exhale briefly and then something else comes up like an idiot. I turned and look at the New York times or the Washington post website. Oh, cause I'm a news junkie. And, and that tension comes back about what's, what's gonna happen. What does the future bring? Where are we out right now? Uh, so I wish, I wish I was able to, um, wind down better and more often and feel that relaxation.
1: If you could be on vacation right now, where would it be?
0: Oh, my, uh, family hometown in Italy. Uh, we, uh, my family lives in a couple of small towns above Avellino, which is itself above, above Naples in the mountains. A small town called Sumante, which means high in the mountain and Hospitaletto di Alpinolo. Which mean Alpine Spa, and they're both sort of wintertime ski areas, and they're sort of like the Catskills for Rome, where people go to get out in the summer heat. And uh, um, I have some cousins there and an uncle who just recently passed away. Uh, they're uh, food they, they own a hotel. A couple of them are doctors, and they're very you know, they're wonderful little towns. Uh, and you really feel like you're giving away because you are. And everyone says this, and because uh, it's true, the Italian lifestyle is is admirable. I. I don't know how they do it, uh, but they manage, and it's, and it's a lot of fun for Americans to go there and relax. So that's where, that's where I would be for sure.
1: Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them?
0: Hang in there. I mean, I think my growing up and all the things we're talking about is, look, times, times will get better, things will get better. Um, everything goes in cycles. I went to a high school, a Jesuit high school where among the requirements was a year of Latin and a year of Greek. And I don't know if they still did that, but it was my requirement then. So I got this real interest in the classics and I, and I would recommend to people, not that people might have the time for this, but pick up Aristotle, read the Stoics, read Marcus Aurelius, nothing changes. The human condition is the human condition. And there's a lot of solace to be, to be gotten out of that. And to read something written 2,000 years ago that applies to the, to the American condition is remarkable. And I think it gives you a lot of hope and a lot of uplift and a ton of perspective. I think we all need better perspective these days. So that would be my advice. Get some perspective. And a good way to do that is read, read some of the ancients. They're pretty good at it.
1: Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukomnik and our special guest, Joe Ferrillo. Joe doesn't know this, but as an Emmy winner, he completes Outside In's guest EGOT. Joe's (laughs) Emmy, Fantastic Negrito's three Grammys, Estelle Parsons' Oscar, and Zach Stafford's Tony. More importantly, as you've heard, Joe brings insight, perception, and a great conversation. Thanks so much, Joe.
0: John, this was spectacular. Thank you so much. And congrats on this podcast. You're amazing.
1: You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukumnik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Hingasa, John Lukomik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.